Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, the question everyone asks today is, how did a total right-wing extremist conspiracy not like Donald Trump manage in so short a time to take over the Republican Party? In his new book, American Psychosis, Mother Jones' David Korn points out that that question's historically wrong. It ignores the fact that Trump didn't make the Republican Party crazy. It's always been crazy. Under Richard Nixon, Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, and both Bushes, there were always conspiratorial wackos like the John Birch Society and Joe McCarthy. The difference is that before Trump, while mainstream Republicans tolerated right-wing extremists, they still managed to keep them on the fringes of the party. But Donald Trump not only opened the doors and let them in, he himself spread their conspiracies about birtherism, the deep state, Hillary Clinton, Hunter Biden, and voter fraud, among other nonsense. Today, there is no longer any Republican Party. There's only the extremist Trump Party, well-deserving of the title David Korn gives it, American Psychosis. Hello, David Korn, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to be with you, Bill. Uh, congratulations on the new book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. Now, David, first of all, let me let me just ask, psychosis, I mean, that's a pretty powerful word. I mean, severe mental disorder, Well, that's, it, that's the Republican Party today? Well, when you are detached from reality, I mean, that's psychosis. When you don't understand or acknowledge reality, when you believe something that is not real. If you look at the Republican Party right now, its raison d'etre is the lost cause of Donald Trump's election. That is that it was stolen mm -hmm. from him. That is a big lie. We know that. and But yet millions of Americans adhere to this, and it's become the motivating force of the Republican Party. Uh, you had not just thousands of people at January 6th, but you have still, all this time later, millions of Americans who say the election was stolen, that, jo that Joe Biden did not win legitimately. There is no reason to believe that. There's no evidence. Every time I hear Marjorie Taylor Greene or somebody <laughs> else get up there and say the election was stolen, I go, my God, don't you have some, some obligation to present evidence to back this up? We know that during the January 6th hearings, one of them, Rusty Bowers, the Speaker of the Arizona State House, said that Rudy Giuliani told him in the post-election period, we have no evidence, we just have theories. Mm. And so the fact that this has been so firmly absorbed by millions of Republican voters 
and encouraged by not just Donald Trump, but most of the Republican leadership, is a form of political psychosis. Well, the key point of your book, at least that I took away, to, to take away from your book, David, is that it didn't, this psychosis didn't start with Donald Trump, right? First of all, it's been uh, very uh, common in the, among the Republican Party of these, these extreme, the presence of these extremists. But even beyond that, um, I mean, you go back to, this is part of the backstory of America, right? Uh, we're a nation that kind of has always been fueled by conspiracies and paranoia and wackos. Back to the Salem witch trials, for example. Right. I mean, I, I, there's a chapter in the book that just talks about how paranoia and conspiracy theory have long been part of American public life right. and American politics. And that's been true on, on both sides, um, not just you know the Republican side. You had the Illuminati scare of the early 1800s, then the anti-Masonic conspiracy theory that led to the anti-Masonic party. You've had anti-Catholicism that's been, you know, part of a conspiracy theory that was been used by politicians. But what I really, you know, the bulk of the book, the real, the book really takes right. off after World War II. And what, and, and what I describe and chronicle is that the Republican Party for the last 70 years has consistently exploited and encouraged extremism. And that could be paranoia, uh, uh, bigotry, native nativism, um, all sorts of far right fanaticism. That the party has courted it, has encouraged it, and you know to different degrees and in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Donald Trump hasn't invented anything new; he's just put it center stage. You can go back to McCarthy in the early 1950s, and what he did was to claim that America, the American government, the U.S. government, was being run by people who were Soviet agents, who were plotting to destroy the America and hand it over to uh, Moscow. I mean, he named names. He said that the leader of this plot was George uh, C. Marshall. He was the army chief of staff in World War II, helped win the war. He helped save Europe with the Marshall Plan. And he was at this point secretary of defense. And here's Joe McCarthy saying he is literally in charge of a cabal that has the in, the expressed purpose of destroying the United States from within. Not that they're wrong, not that their policies are bad and ill-advised, but that he was purposefully and actively trying to weaken the United States so the Soviet Union could take it over. And the Republican Party, this point in time, lionized Joe McCarthy. They saw that he was winning elections. He was winning elections for other Republicans. And he was exploiting fear and unease that had set upon America in the post-war period with Cold War tensions and this new thing we had, you know, we, we were coming to grips with, nuclear terror and the prospect of a nuclear war. He So he was both encouraging and exploiting that fear amongst millions of Americans. And he was telling them something that wasn't true. And right. most Republicans knew that George C. Marshall was not running a plot, but they went along and it was very, very effective. Now in the you know, 70 years since then, 
we probably- let, let, let me let me interrupt you if I can because what I found so stunning about that history, uh, that chapter of yours, is that here is Dwight Eisenhower, right, running for president on a train with Joe McCarthy in Wisconsin, and he Eisenhower, who was Marshall's buddy, who appointed Marshall Secretary of Defense, who served with him in World War II. And Eisenhower caved and refused to criticize Joe McCarthy or defend Marshall against him. Right. In fact, it's one of my favorite stories in the book. They're on a train together campaigning in Wisconsin, whistle-stopping. McCarthy was up for uh, re-election at the same time as Eisenhower was running for election in 1952 for president. And Eisenhower hated the fact that McCarthy was going after his good friend of uh, George Marshall, his comrade from, from the days in World War II. And he asked a speechwriter to put a paragraph in his big speech, the end of this tour that was going to be at Marquette University, which is where McCarthy went to school and law school. He asked him to put in a paragraph that basically attacked McCarthy, though not by name, and defended Marshall. It was a little bit oblique, but everybody would have known right. that this was an attack on McCarthy and Eisenhower distancing himself. On the train that afternoon, as it was chugging through Wisconsin, uh, the Republican governor of Wisconsin, the head of the Republican Party, the RNC, and Sherman Adams, the Republican governor of New Hampshire, who was Dwight Eisenhower's chief of staff, saw this draft, and they freaked out. He said, yeah. you, you can't do this. McCarthy is one of the leaders of the party, but we need Wisconsin in, to win the election. And more importantly, perhaps, McCarthy had helped the Republican Party win over Catholic voters. He was Catholic, of course, and Catholics had primarily, primarily been in the Democratic column for decades mm -hmm. for all sorts of historical reasons. But because of McCarthy's virulent anti-communism, Catholics were drawn to the man. And if Eisenhower attacked McCarthy, that would alienate voters in Wisconsin, they believed, and alienate Catholic voters across the country. They you know, went to him and said, you can't do this. He looked at them and he said, okay, take it out. And then he gave, <laughs> and then he gave a speech that night that the Milwaukee Journal said was light McCarthyism. It was you know, basically echoing McCarthy's charges a little less pointed and not naming names. Yeah. So he totally caved. And, you know, in the years since then, every Republican president or a presidential candidate has in some way or another made a devil's deal. Sometimes they haven't seen it that way. Sometimes they wanted to do it mm -hmm. with right wing extremism whether it was Nixon and the Southern strategy and making a deal with segregationists, or whether it was Ronald Reagan embracing the moral majority at a time when its leaders were literally calling for the execution of homosexuals, of gay Americans, or it was George W. Bush making a deal with the Christian Coalition and Pat Robertson to help him defeat um, John McCain, mm -hmm. yep. um, the Tea Party and John Boehner, all the way up to Trump. There's always been some element of the Republican Party. This is their dark history, a side that they don't like to talk about, where they've been taking advantage of, capitalizing on far-right resentment, grievance, paranoia, and, and fear and hatred. And in fact, you begin the book 
with a scene from the Republican convention in San Francisco with uh, Nelson Rockefeller uh, standing up and trying to save the party. This is where the Barry Goldwater was nominated, trying to save the party from the John Birch Society, right? But yes, yeah, same John, thing. The John Birch Society was like McCarthyism on steroids. You know, they, you know they were founded by a, a guy who was a crazy lunatic conspiracy theorist, Robert Welch, who believed that the communists had infiltrated virtually every PTA across America, every union shop, every museum, every school, every corporation, and both parties. In fact, he said that Eisenhower was a communist agent <laughs> being run by his, being handled by his brother Milton um, Eisenhower, uh, you know, uh, uh, another secret communist. He was certifiably nuts, and he created the John Birch Society in the late 50s, and by 1964, it had 100,000 or more members, but these members were dedicated foot soldiers in the Barry Goldwater presidential campaign, yep. and they helped Goldwater defeat defeat Nelson Rockefeller, a liberal and moderate Republican, in the Republican presidential primary of that year. And Goldwater, you know, had done all he could for the last, for the years prior to that, to make sure that they were not excommunicated from the Republican Party. There were moderate Republicans and others who thought that these wackos in the John Birch Society, that the party needed to disavow them and distance itself from them. Um, Goldwater was willing to distance himself from Welch because of his own Welch's particular mm -hmm. crazy remarks, but he wanted to keep the John Birch Society in the tent and on his side. And it, he did. It worked. It helped. It helped him get the nomination. And at the convention you mentioned in San Francisco at the Cow Palace in the summer of 1964, the moderate Republicans tried one last stand and they put, they proposed a platform plank that denounced the extremism of the Communist Party, the Ku Klux Klan, and the John Birch Society. Right. And when Nelson Rockefeller went to speak in support of this provision, this resolution, in front of the entire convention, it was a it was a near riot. The delegates and other people in the crowd hooted and jeered at him. They threw stuff at him. Uh, reporters there feared that violence would break out, and they shouted down uh, Rockefeller, and they voted down the measure. Uh, they did not want to be on record as denouncing or criticizing the extreme paranoid anti-communism of the John Birch Society. And then a night or two later, Barry Goldwater made his, fam you know, his famous speech in which he said extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. So when extremism had become an issue in the campaign and then was an issue at the, at the party convention, he, I don't know, what's beyond doubling down, tripling down, quarterly down, <laughs> yeah. he just went all in on being in favor of extremism. And of course, it, you know, this all led to, his, to a disastrous defeat for Goldwater and Republicans in 64. But, but what it did also was to bring all these extremists 
into the mm-hmm. Republican Party. They stayed there. They did the work. They took over party apparatuses across the country. And they were the ones who years later brought about the Reagan revolution. Right. And so from Barry Goldwater and Joe McCarthy and the Reagan revolution, and you got Newt Gingrich, what I guess what you're saying is when Trump got there, right, the the ground was already plowed, right? The seeds were already planted. It was already fertile soil for Donald Trump to come in and 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 take the extremists from the fringe to center stage. What he did was to take a long-practiced tradition of the Republican Party that they had kept mainly, mm-hmm. not all the time, to the side right, and bring it to the front and center of the stage and put it in the spotlight. Um, Mitt Romney, when he ran, he he embraced Donald Trump, who was a birther, and basically said birtherism is fine within the party. So he was trying to you know show that he could speak to those people in an indirect way. Uh, John Boehner had romanced the Tea Party that had argued, I mean, quite literally, you remember this, we're not that old, um, that the Tea Party argument was that Barack Obama was literally a secret Muslim socialist born in Kenya who had a secret plan to destroy the U.S. economy so he could impose a totalitarian, totalitarian dictatorship. Glenn Beck said that every night on Fox, and who was on the show with him? John Boehner, other Republicans, Sarah Palin, they were validating and authenticating this crazy conspiracy theory stuff because they wanted these people voting for the Republicans in the midterm election, which they did, and helped elect John Boehner speaker. So this has always been done. You know, Donald Trump just made it the core of his political project. You know, he didn't bother with the niceties of, well, here's my policy plans. Here's what I'm going to do about the infrastructure and taxes and housing and healthcare. No, he just went straight for the fear and the exploitation of grievances and resentments and latching onto that extremist power. Now, it was, I think, an open question when he began whether it would be successful. There's always been different strains within, or I would say, there's always been tension within the Republican Party, which are Republicans who care about policy and want to do things, and you know, conservative things that you and I might disagree with, but that's what they, they're there for. Yeah, right. And Republicans who just want to, you know, do whatever they can to get elected. And if that means exploiting fear and resentments, they'll do that. You know, there's always been that tension there. And often campaigns have had to do both at the same time. Well, Trump just said, screw that. You know, yeah. I'm just going in on 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 the far right extremism, and he embraced Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist. He, you know, uh, when people said, you know, shouted at his at, at his rallies, get rid of Muslims, he said, yeah, we're going to look into that. Mm. You know, so um, he just, you know, took what had been done. He did more of it, and wasn't shy about it. Again, we remember this is not that long ago. There were many voices still in the Republican Party as Trump ascended who spoke out against him and warned that this is not where the party should go. Lindsay, you, you, you quote this in your book. I've got your book open here, page 287. <laughs> Lindsey Lindsey Graham, quote, 
we should have basically kicked him out of the party. Uh, you've got even Glenn Beck who said that uh, Trump represented uh, a threat to possible extinction-level event for American democracy and capitalism. So how did Trump succeed in taking over? They, the party, again, basically just caved? It's not about Donald Trump. It's hmm. about yeah. the Republican base, right? Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, could embrace a conspiracy theorist. He can, you know, promote um, election denialism. He can incite a riot. And if enough, you know, Republican voters said, that's too much for me, I don't want that crazy, then it wouldn't go anywhere or it would end. It would peter out. But what, you know, the Republicans discovered, I think to some of their horror, is that what the party had been doing for decades, Donald Trump did so well that it, you know, it became a core tenet of the Republican base. And, you know, in some ways you can look at what happened with Sarah Palin in 2008 saying, you know, that Barack Obama was not a true American. He didn't understand America and he was palling on with terrorists. And you had those campaign rallies where people were shouting, kill him, you know, kill him off with his head. And, you know, and McCain, you know, we liked John McCain in a lot of ways. I knew him. I liked a lot of things about John, but he, you know, went along with that. He did not stop that happening during these campaigns. And that fed into the Tea Party antipathy right. and, and, and fear mongering. And so I think the as the Republicans did this over the years, they radicalized the Republican voter. So by the time Trump comes along, he, you know, either recognizes that and intuits that or you know thinks it's a, you know that he put places his money on on this bet and you know it, it's almost an unstoppable force they want the red meat they want the extremism and the rest of the party you know which has played footsie with extremism over these years you know has lost control i mean john banner lost control he had to leave the speakership mm -hmm. before the tea party you know, elected Republicans were about to mutiny against him. You know, Mitt Romney, when he ran in 2012, as I said a moment ago, he embraced Donald Trump, this birther, and validated and authenticated him and said he was a legitimate part of the Republican cosmos. And then when Trump becomes, you know, a problem, Mitt Romney tries to speak out against him, but it's too late. Mitt, you know, you help create the monster by telling the base, by signaling to the base that Trump was okay. So uh, that leads us to the big question about where the Republican Party is today, and are there is there any hope uh, that if we want to call them whatever mainstream Republicans can retake back control of the party, or is anybody even trying? Uh, let's take a quick break, David, and get into that when we when we come back on the other side of the uh, Bill Press Pod here. Uh, again, our guest today, David Corn who's the uh, Washington bureau chief for Mother Jones, but author of an important new book, uh, Amer American Psychosis, A Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. We'll be right back. Today's podcast brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. One and a half million members strong. The Teamsters Union are America's largest and most diverse labor union. 
They represent every aspect of American, the American workforce from vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, and bakers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters Union and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back on the Bill Press Pod here. David Korn, Washington Bureau Chief for Mother Jones and uh, editor or author or publisher of the newsletter, Our Land, which, by the way, David, I enjoy very, very much. Uh, Thank you, though. Yeah, good job. How can people... Uh, track you down for our land. Uh, well, if you want to subscribe to our land and the trial subscription is free, mm-hmm. you can go to davidcorn.com, D-A-V-I-D-C-O-R-N.com, and we'll bump you to a page where you can sign up. Or you uh, can go to my Twitter feed, and and I think in my bio, it takes you there as well. Okay. So um, today's Republican Party. Uh, President Biden got in a little trouble, uh, well, maybe a little, with some people at any rate, uh, a week or so ago when he said that uh, the MAGA, the underlying philosophy of the MAGA Republicans, he he said it was like semi-fascist. Is he right? Well, I think he's right. If you want to, you know, if people want to argue the point, if you have someone who denies election results without evidence, makes baseless charges, incites people to riot, uh, to stop the peaceful transfer of power does nothing while that's happening to defend the constitution and to defend the peaceful transfer of power. And then says he's going to pardon rioters if he should get back in the white house. And I mean, that is certainly, you know, somewhat fascistic to do that, that, you know, denying democracy. It's an, you know, yeah, I, you know, you can call it being an authoritarian, and trying to undo the U.S. Constitution. Um, I got to tell you, Bill, you know, I started this book a little over a year ago, and I didn't expect it to be so timely. 
because I think that the historical context that that I discovered that I you know write you know write about in the book gives us the context for the debate we're having now about absolutely MAGA, about no. MAGA extremism. What is yeah. it for the party? Is Trump leading the party towards fascism or not? And what you know what I found in doing the book and what we've been talking about is that this is not a new issue. You know, if you if Trump, you know, went away, you know, if if he was, you know, sent off to um you know Siberia, which I'm sure he can get a nice place there with his connections, um, <laughs> and we never heard from him again, the, the the problem of Trumpism will remain. And I think the book shows that this strain of conservatism and the exploitation of it by the GOP is has always been there. And you're not going to be able to sort of flick a switch and go back to a, a reasonable Republican party um, and, and go back to just having policy debates. You know, I think there's a bit of a myth that the Republican party prior to Trump, you know, was this wonderful debating society mm -hmm. with people who just had different ideas than, than Democrats. So uh, I'm hoping that the book, helps inform us uh, as we try to th think about what to do today and in the future about regarding the threat posed by Trumpism. I think if you come to the understanding that this is not new, that Trump is a culmination, not an aberration, it sort of changes the way you look at the problem. Well, the president seemed to, uh, he did assert a couple of days later, um, okay, he clarified, I'm not talking about all Republicans, right? Just MAGA Republicans. Sort of uh, expressing the hope, if he didn't say it precisely, that um, somehow the mainstream Republicans can kick the MAGA Republicans out and restore the Republican Party to what it once was. What I hear you're saying is that's basically pretty naive and ain't going to happen. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to happen because of where the Republican base voters are. And I think if you look at the history that I lay out in American Psychosis, you understand how the base got that way. Yeah. And that there's, there was never really a golden era of the Republican Party where dealing with extremism, exploiting and encouraging extremism was not a problem. And now that you've done that for 70 years and it's reached, you know, this extreme point, um, I don't think you can just dial it back a bit. I think you know it's it's almost a bit like crossing the Rubicon. You you they they've made it the um, one of the central elements of the party. It's always been there, but now that it's sort of taken over the party, uh, I don't know how you sort of just you know have you know an election here or there or or a conference or a convention and just say we're not doing that anymore. Uh, it's sort you know. With Frankenstein's monster, you know, it was hard to sort of say, oh, we're just going to bring him back to the shop and tinker with him and make things better. Uh, so, I, so, you know, the way I look at it now is that the Republican Party, in some ways, is permanently broken. Uh, you know, it's got to this point for the reasons I lay out in the book. And it's not about replacing parts and getting to a different, getting it back to a better position. I think in some ways it's permanently broken. And if you believe that, it informs and shapes what you think, you know, politics in America should be going forward. If the Republican Party is broken and, and there are 
20, 30 percent of the public that can't be reached. And they're in the, you know, the grips of um, Trumpism and authoritarianism. You know, you don't waste time trying to persuade them they're, they're wrong. If you believe in a, a psychosis, a political, you know, if you're, if, you're, if you're hit by a political psychosis, the election was stolen. You, you can't have a debate with those with someone like that. You can't cha- change their minds. So you need to find a way to isolate and contain that element of the population. I mean this politically, not physically. You right. know, segregate them politically and try to work around that and try to you know contain it. So it's as small a portion, although still significant, uh, smallest portion of the of the population as possible, and unfortunately, they will have disproportionate political power because of gerrymandering and the structure of the Senate. But you want to basically get anybody who, you know, doesn't lean in that direction to understand the threat, and to take a step or two away from that portion of the public politically, and create a popular front of people who are opposed to authoritarian authoritarianism, but most importantly, who recognize it as a threat. I mean, most Americans, you know, do not agree the election was stolen, do not agree Donald Trump should be president again. I mean, this is a, these are minority positions, you know, held passionately by those who hold them. Right. But the point is the Americans who don't believe that need to understand or be, you know, be convinced that indeed this other group poses a threat. And if you and if you see it that way, that there is a need, a very pressing need, to find a way to counter it. So do you believe that, I mean, I saw the other day, there was something like 120 election deniers who were across the country on the ballot this year, right? Running for yes, election yes. officials, secretary of state, governor in Pennsylvania, for example. Yeah. Is our democracy at is it an exaggeration to say that our democracy itself is at stake in this in these midterm elections? I, I think so. You know, you have most of the Republican Party, most candidates running, who you know either outright say that their that the election was stolen and, and that it wasn't fair, and so they're denialists about the processes that we need to preserve in this country, or they support the man who created this theory and who's still flogging it and who incited violence to advance it. So, you know, if that's, you know, if, if that's where these people are, it shows me that they are not respectful or certainly not defenders of, you know, of, of, of democracy and of uh, a fair and legitimate election system. And so if they gain power, Republicans gain power in the House, gain power at the state level. I would, you know, I would be worried about that, given their allegiance to a man who doesn't respect the Constitution, didn't defend the Constitution. And we know that a lot of these, you know, a lot of these people, some of these people, you know, have said that they would not have not have certified the 2020 election. So, okay, if they get into a position of power when they actually have the have that decision making power in, in their own hands, what are they going to do again? Are they going to, you know, you know, in Arizona, for instance, there's a guy named Mark Fincham who's running for secretary of state, who is a tremendous election denialist, pro-Trumper, and also been involved in the, you know, in, in, Q, in QAnon activity. So he's, I would call him a real kook. And if he becomes secretary of state 
and a Democrat wins in 2024 uh, against Trump or any Republican, is he going to refuse to certify the election? Is he going to cause chaos? Is he going to throw it to a Republican state legislature that may then vote not for the person who got the majority of the votes in the state? Uh, it's And this could be happening in multiple locations come 2024 if some of these people win. You mentioned the Pennsylvania governor, Doug Mastriano, who is running for governor as Republican. He won the Republican primary. He was in, at, you know, at the Capitol on January 6th, outright election denialist, a Christian nationalist as well, and has been, you know, I think he's he's tweeted some QAnon-ish tweets or hashtags. Uh, and he gets to appoint the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania who gets to decide right. to certify things. So I, you know, given the fact that these people um, have already stated they wouldn't abide by results last time and their continuing support for Donald Trump, you have to wonder what they will do uh, in future elections if they're in charge of them. And meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump himself, right, the ringleader, uh, is openly talking, of course, about running again in 2024. Um, and um, if he got in, God forbid, right, what could happen to yeah, yeah, democratic I, yeah. institutions? You know, I, I've, you know, I've written this numerous times since 2015 that I believe the three things that Donald Trump cares about most in life are revenge, revenge, and revenge. Um, you can throw a little spite into that as well. It overlaps. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, should he, you know, he, we see, you know, we, we see recently stories, you know, um, about how he tried to use the justice department to pursue his enemies with criminal um, cases mm -hmm. and that people in, 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 you know, U S attorneys had to resist that. This is a guy, you know, as big as his, the chip on his shoulder was, before he became president, you know, now it's the size of his debt. So we're talking about really, really, really big, right? And, you know, when he comes, if, if, if he should get into power again, you know, his desire for revenge against Republicans, against Democrats, you know, against, you know, Meryl Streep, whoever, is going to be so strong. And we're going to get a taste of this if the House Republicans manage mm -hmm. to take control in the midterms. There will be 37 hearings about Hunter Biden. They oh, will, you, you know, yeah. They've already said they're going to call Merrick Garland in and right. accuse him of, viol you know, of, of, of breaking the law by going after Trump at, at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, everything, and you know, uh, they're going to go after the, they're going to shut down the IRS. They're going to do everything they can to cause chaos and to serve Donald Trump and his fantasies of vengeance. So uh, we may get a taste of it sooner than 2024. Well, American Psychosis is the book. David Korn, it's just out. Historical Investigation of How the Republican Party Went Crazy. I think, David, what's so important about this book is that you put it in context, uh, that we should not be surprised that the Republican Party has turned out this way because this is what the Republican Party is uh, and has always been. Uh, it's just that now they're in uh, the uh, the main circle instead of one of the side circles, and they've got the ringleader uh, in Donald Trump. But um, so 
Very, very important. Great job on the book. Uh, thank you. And uh, we will have a link on the in the episode notes to today's podcast for how you can get your copy of American Psychosis. You will learn from it uh, as much as I have. And um, David, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And that's a wrap for today's podcast with David Korn from Mother Jones' new book, American Psychosis. Boy, what a great wrap of the history of the Republican Party. Uh, check out the book. There's a link, of course, in the episode notes to today's podcast for you to purchase the book, uh, and you will enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, meanwhile, Congress back in session, Congress working to get things done. Uh, we'll take a look at uh, what's happening in Congress, at the White House, any other news of the week from Washington, D.C. on Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Come back and see us on Friday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.